Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. With my busy life, I use shipped same-day delivery to keep up. When I need a jar of extra creamy peanut butter delivered, I know my personal shopper Amber will come through. And if it's not on the shelf, she asks them to check the back. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at shipped.com. I am so excited for this podcast today, so I really want to thank you for listening. But I want to let you know about a new job I am hiring for. I am looking for an experienced talent booker to help me expand the James Altucher show. Go to jamesaltucher.com slash jobs to learn more. Thanks. And now here's the show. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher show on the Choose Yourself Network. Welcome to our brand new sponsor, HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun so you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. I've tried a bunch of different food delivery services and really feel HelloFresh is finally the best choice for me. HelloFresh employs two full-time registered dietitians on staff who review each recipe to ensure it is nutritionally balanced. That's really important to me because I try to eat fresh foods that give me energy to sustain me throughout the day. For $30 off on your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter James Altucher 30 when you subscribe. Delicious ingredients you'll love to eat, simple recipes you'll love to cook. Get cooking. Today's show is also brought to you by ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter can help you find the right hire. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Today on the James Altucher Show. You have a phrase that you use in a couple different places, discipline equals freedom. I really like that a lot, and I think it could be applied to many areas of life. And, and a lot of this is related to the concept of being proactive, to kind of deal with situations before they happen. You know, I don't want to go completely in-depth on the military history at this point, but I might a little bit. So... The Germans kind of created this idea of decentralized command. They created it after the Battle of Jena where they got beat by Napoleon and they just couldn't maneuver their troops fast enough because the senior leadership would try and control each individual move. And on a battlefield, you can't control these individual moves. They happen so rapidly that your leaders that are in the field need to say, oh, we're getting flanked. We need to move over here. We're going to make it happen. So that's where they came up with this idea of totally decentralized command and this idea of commander's intent. And what the U.S. military did, because the U.S. military is a big bureaucratic machine, 
is make briefings for our operations that would be 100 or 150 PowerPoint slides deep of telling, okay, this is what's going to happen here. Here's our contingency. If this happened, here's our contingency. If this happens, these massive plans. And at the end of this whole big briefings, we'd, we'd have a little line that said commander's intent. You know, my, my commander's intent, my end state that I'm going for is this. And this one critic of the way we planned said that the commander's intent shouldn't be one line on the end of a 50-page briefing. It should replace the whole briefing. If you just stand-up comedy, can you imagine you going out on the stage and like being like really like hardcore and then getting laughs and out of that? Cracking jokes? Yeah. 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 I I've done that. Um, boy, you know, it's, I can make people laugh. I mean, there's funny things when a big um, mutant creature like myself <laughs> says certain things, they sound funny. So, yeah. So I'm here with uh, Jocko Willink. Jocko, welcome. You've been, um, first off, I'm going to hold up your books here because we're on Facebook Live at the moment too. Extreme Ownership, How U.S. Navy Seals Lead and Win. And your new book, it's a kid's novel, Way of the Warrior Kid. From Wimpy to Warrior, the Navy Seal Way. Congrats on this book. This is the last book I would expect you to write. So congrats on this. Yeah, I had to convince my publisher that I should do that. And was he like, Jock, are you insane? Yeah, he was kind of like that because, and, and well, you've written a bunch of books, so you know this, but you know, he was telling me, hey, you know, what you write is kind of who you are. You just can't do these random things. People are going to expect a certain thing from you and you just can't change it. And, and they want to put you in a bucket. Right, like, right. And I hate that, but, but go ahead. So how did you convince him? Well, that book did really well. Extreme Ownership did really well. And Number then, one New York Times bestseller. Yep. And then my podcast did really, it is doing really well. And my publisher actually called me and said, hey, Jocko, your, your podcast is another book you, you can you can put that thing in a book form it's awesome he, he he loves the podcast and and i was kind of already going down that road and i was actually going to self-publish it because i just wanted to get it out quick and i just yeah. wanted to get you know people were asking me the same questions a bunch i just wanted to get that information out there and he says no let us publish it we can do a really good job and and i said well publish that because i already i literally had already given him the kids book not completed but i gave him hey this is the next thing i'm going to do and so I said, okay, I'll do the podcast book with you. First, we do the kid's book. And he said, well, let's do it. All right, that's a good way to do it. You're a negotiator. <laughs> yeah. So, so Jack, I just want to give a little uh, bio and you could add to it. Uh, you were in the Navy SEALs for, I'm guessing, about 14, 15 years? 20. 20 years. Yep. And you were deployed to Iraq. And as shown in this book, Extreme Ownership, you were in a lot of dangerous heavy fire situations where they were the ultimate high stakes, you lost friends, and you were the commander of your SEAL unit there and had to make lots of life and death decisions under, what is it called, the line of fire. But out of that, you cultivated all of these leadership lessons that you now apply in your company, Echelon Front, where you, you help businesses deal with leadership issues. And I just want to express a lot of these leadership issues you discovered on the battlefield, again, in these high-stakes situations. But these leadership lessons are useful for anybody, career, relationships, just life decisions in general. But I have to admit, I was a bit 
nervous coming in to interview you. Yeah, you see this cover on the way of the warrior kid? So I'm 49 and this is me right now. Like I can't do a, a pull up, you know, and I, I never been in the battlefield, obviously, or I would look completely different. And I don't know, I was just nervous about it. Like maybe you would, uh, you would judge me for that somehow. I've I've been under adversity, incredible adversity, right. but not not with anybody shooting a gun at me. Yeah, well, I think that you know that kid in that book, the character's name is Mark, and I think that's representative of most kids. Most kids, being a kid's not easy. You're transforming and becoming a human being. Where you know, at some point, you have everyone taking care of you and protecting you, and then all of a sudden, you're out in the world. And so everybody goes through that hard time where they, and you know, pull-ups is one example, but what could, you know, this kid not do? This kid couldn't win the spelling bee and was ashamed of it. And you know, that the, the kid in the book doesn't know his times tables. And that's taken directly from one of my kids that she didn't know her times tables. And she was so frustrated about not knowing her times tables. And, and, you know, I don't know if depressed is a strong word, but all of a sudden she thought she was stupid. And I said to her, you know, well, have you studied what, what method are you using to study? And she says, you know, she's in fourth grade or something. She says, no, what do you mean? And I said, well, you need to study to learn them. You just can't know them. You know, the world, you just don't know things. You don't, the, the, the software doesn't come in the brain. You have to program it. That's a lesson that needs to be learned though. Exactly. And so then I said, oh, okay, well, let's sit down. We'll make flashcards. And, and then in, you know, a half an hour, she knew all of her times tables, but that is, it's a lesson that has to be learned. And that's one of the lessons that's in the book. And, and again, you can apply that to anything. If it's learning a language, if it's, you're struggling with certain areas in school, certain subjects in school, you need to study. You're not just going to know them. I mean, it, it strikes me. So I'm going to now, I'm going to go backwards and forwards in time. So it strikes me like when you were, there was one or two situations when you were in Iraq and um, somebody in your unit or somebody in a, a friendly unit sees potential enemy soldiers that could you could potentially, you know, your guys, uh, and actually specifically Chris Kyle, who's the figure, figure American Sniper is based on, could take out before the enemy guys could take you out. And you had to just make a decision, um, are these friendly guys or are they enemy soldiers? And all the evidence seemed to point that they were enemy soldiers. And ultimately, though, you you paused enough to get more information where every second counted, and you determined, fortunately, that they were friendlies and not enemies. And it strikes me that that's the sort of situation you can't just, again, like the times table, you're not born knowing, oh, I need to pause a little bit more here. Like there was something in your gut based on experience that told you no I needed to get I need to gather more information. So how did you kind of start to learn these lessons? Well, and actually just a little correction here. That particular chapter, the, the book Extreme Ownership was written by myself and a guy named Leif Babin who was a guy that worked for me in the Battle of Ramadi. He was one of the two SEAL platoon commanders that was part of tasking to bruiser. And so that was actually him in that particular situation. And that was representative of the decisions that my, my guys, all of them were making all the time on the battlefield. And there's a bunch of little techniques that you have to get accustomed to, to make those decisions. And, you know, you know, one thing I talk about all the time is having the ability to detach yourself from the situation and not get 
totally wrapped up in the emotion. I mean, in that particular situation, the the army guys were telling Leif, take the shot, kill these guys. These are bad guys. Kill, you know, take the shot, take the shot. And Leif just had to step back and say, okay, let me think about this first before I tell Chris to take the shot. Because trust me, if Chris is taking the shot, someone's getting killed. I mean, he was a very effective sniper. And even Chris didn't feel comfortable with it. You know, that's why Chris was asking the question. So, so the question started with Chris because Chris didn't need our authority to take the shot. None of our snipers, none of our machine gunners did. They knew what the intent of the operations were. So if they were asking a question, they had a concern. And so that gives us a concern right away. What do you think his concern was? Like, was it a gut thing or did he notice something unusual? He couldn't positively identify the target. And if we can't positively identify the target, then we're not going to take the shot, especially in a moment when there's friendly forces maneuvering around the battlefield. And uh, again, if you remember the first chapter of of the book, it's a situation that goes bad and there's what we call a blue-on-blue, a fratricide, where one of my SEALs, shot and killed a friendly Iraqi soldier and the big firefight broke out and it was a nightmare. And we had, that happened within a couple of weeks of being on deployment. So we had the work, you know, in, in my opinion, the worst thing that can happen in combat is friendly fire death is fratricide. When you kill your brother, that's the worst thing that can happen. And so we'd had that lesson early in deployment. So everybody had that in the back of their mind. And so if they weren't hundred percent sure about a shot, they would, try and figure out what the situation, get more clarity on the situation so that they could make a good decision. So that, that first chapter was very interesting because it sort of leads to the title of the book and kind of pervades the lessons from the rest of the book, but also pervades, I think, leadership lessons in every area of life. And so your book's called Extreme Ownership. And, and in that particular chapter, you everybody, you know, in the postmortem, people wanted to know essentially who's to blame. I'm just putting it like simply, who's to blame. And, you know, a lot of people were saying they were to blame, you know, let's say the person who fired the gun, or let's say the person who identified someone who could potentially be an enemy. Um, But you stood up there as the commander and said, no, I'm to blame. Here are the things where I could have done it better. And, And so this idea of extreme ownership, both when you're managing down and managing up, becomes extremely important. I think this is important in the workplace. It's important in, you know, if you're writing a book, it's important if you're any, important anything, any endeavor. Right, important in life. So so maybe define it a little bit more, you know, outside the battlefield. Yeah, it's what you said. It's it's a mindset where you're not going to blame any, anybody else. You're not going to blame anything else. You're going to take ownership when there's a problem and you're going to get the problem solved. It's that simple. So many people in so many different situations in business and in life, when when something's not going their way, they say, "Oh well, the market the market turned against me, so you know that's not my fault." Or, you know, my competitor did things I didn't expect them to do, so that's not my fault, and that's why we're losing money this quarter. Or in their life, they say, "You know, I'm out of shape, but that's because I hurt my knee, you know, three months ago, and so I haven't been able to work out because it's been making me limp." And so, uh, all you're doing is blaming other people or other things for things that are going wrong in your life. And all those situations, if you, you won't solve those situations if you don't take ownership of them. So 
if the market changed and you say, hey, the market changed, there's nothing I can do about it. Well, well, guess what? You're a business person. Yes, there are things you can do about it when the market changed. First of all, you can have contingency plans set up. Second of all, you can have multiple different streams of incomes and other possibilities of making things happen, or you can react quickly when the market turns. There's things that you can do proactively to overcome those setbacks. Same thing with an injury. Oh, my knees hurt. Okay. So what, what can I do now? Nothing. Does that, does that require couch sitting for the next six months? And eating Doritos, negative, actually. It means you you can work out with one leg. You can, maybe you can swim. Maybe you can do a bunch of pull-ups and work your upper body strength. But you can't just put the excuse on, I hurt my leg, therefore I'm going to turn into a couch potato. And so it happens in life and it happens in business. And with both those, like I said, if you don't take ownership of them, they're not going to change. The problems aren't going to solve themselves. So, so it seems like the idea of... Um you know, putting blame on something is a very uh, evolutionary idea in the sense that something stresses us out. Like, let's say, oh, I can't exercise or my business didn't do well. So, so that's an extreme stress. And there's two ways to relieve the stress. One is to find a solution and say, okay, now I'm going to move forward and I'm going to, and hopefully things will be better with this new plan. But another way to relieve stress is to blame. And so it's a very natural thing that people, it's a natural habit that people build over decades to relieve stress through blame. And because it's because then that releases the cortisol, it spikes up dopamine or whatever, you know, you want to call it. So how do you, the first step, it seems to me is not to say, okay, well, uh, Jocko said I can't blame. The first step is to kind of figure out, well, I must have this habit of blaming. How do I get over this habit? In my opinion, the biggest obstacle to taking ownership of things is your ego. It's your ego because it hurts. Even in that situation in the book, right. when you know, I'd spent at that point 15 or 16 years in the SEAL teams. It was my whole life. I'd built up a fairly solid reputation as a SEAL and as a leader, and I'd already deployed to Iraq and run a bunch of really successful, good operations. And now I'm, you know, I got picked up for a commissioning program. I had had a great career. And now this horrible thing happened, the, the worst thing that can happen on the battlefield. And so for me, my ego was the first thing I had to overcome, or I should say the biggest thing I had to overcome. Because for me to say, hey guys, this horrible thing that happened, this was my fault. That stings. And I think that's the hardest thing that people have to deal with. And, and, and I think if you can look past what that initial sting feels like, you'll see that in the long run, it's very beneficial. Because if you and I are working together and you're my boss and something goes wrong and, and I say, well, hey, sorry, it was, it was Mike over there. It was his fault. And then the next thing goes wrong and I say it was Bill's fault. Well, you're looking at me and thinking, okay, so this guy's not responsible for anything. And eventually you mm. say, well, if you're not responsible for anything, why are you here? Mm. Whereas if, if I say, hey, James, this is what happened. This is the mistakes that we made as a team. I'm responsible for the team and this is what I'm gonna do to fix it next time. You think to yourself, okay, my guy's taking charge of this and he's so, gonna get it solved. So now let me take that one step further. You're reporting to me on this and you're taking blame. Obviously, there's some way also in which I did not strengthen the communication between the two of us. So I need to also share that blame. So what should I say as your leader to kind of share in that responsibility? Well, this is the classic example. If I'm the boss and I say, James, this project failed. You should have done a better job. You're a disaster. I can't trust you with stuff anymore. Okay. What's your reaction? 
well, I'm going to probably hate you. <laughs> there you go. And, <laughs> and that's then quit. <laughs> at, at, at the most, I mean, at the minimum, you, you, you get defensive. At the maximum, you, you hate me and you don't want to work with me and you're going to sabotage what's going on. So this was nothing productive here. Whereas if I were to say, hey, James, you know, obviously this project didn't go the way we wanted it to. I think there's some mistakes I made in explaining to you exactly what we were trying to get done and what the parameters are that we wanted to get it done in. And here's the things I want to change next time around to make sure that I do a better job giving you guidance and, and giving you direction so you can do a better job. Now, most people, their reaction to that is, is my, my boss is taking the blame for something that I screwed up. What a good boss. And you know what, boss? Hey, it's not your fault. I should have asked right. better questions. And so now what we have is we have a whole team where everyone is trying to solve the problems instead of just pointing fingers at each other. Well, I, I find in most leadership situations like that, that what, what breaks down is ultimately agreements. So you think I agreed to something and I think you agreed to something, you know, because there's a lot of agreements that are are written down in in you know the job description and contracts and whatever, but there are a lot of agreements between um, boss and employee or overling, over, underling, whatever, uh, where they're implicit agreements, and your understanding of that might be different than mine. And I think as these situations happen, you kind of learn to communicate to to develop what these agreements are. Yeah, and one of the ways I, I learned to do this in the military, and now I teach this when I'm working with businesses or we're, we're providing consulting services for a business, you're exactly right, and you know this from being in business, you and I can have a, a phone conversation and we can both get off the phone and, and you can go forward with what you think I said and I think you're going forward with what I think you heard and a month down the road, you've done something completely off track. So what, what I always recommend, and I did this when I was in the military, if you and I have a conversation, when we get off the phone, I'm going to say, I'm going to write an email that's going to say, hey, James, just wanted to confirm what we said on the phone. Here's the three points, A, B, and C. And here was the timeline we agreed on. Just wanted to make sure that we were on the same sheet. Let me know if you heard anything different so we, we make sure we're locked on. Boom, problem solved. Same thing, reverse, if I send you an email. Because it's not like email, it's not like you know, not everyone is the best writer in the world. So right. I might send you an email that says, hey, James, need you to knock out this, this, and this. And you get the email and you say, cool, got it. I'm going to go do it. You know, depending on the level of importance of the subject, it might be prudent for me to call you up and say, hey, James, you know that email I just sent you? I just want to talk through and make sure, you know, we're on the same page, the details, and make sure you're heading in the right direction and make sure I gave you clear guidance because I know I'm not the best writer in the world. And you say, oh, okay, cool. This is what I heard. And now we talk through it. So writing... I think enhances conversation and conversation enhances writing. And, and when you have critical decisions that are being passed or directives that are being given, it's best to do both. Yeah. And you know, I, um, like, um, I've run many different businesses and I'm a very non-confrontational person. So often what you're just suggesting is a way to anticipate later confrontation. So you don't have to have it. <laughs> And uh, that's critical. Yeah, 100%. And, and most people don't like confrontation, right? right. Most people don't like confrontation. And I, I think that's true. I've never really, you know, now that I think about it, I never really heard someone say, man, I love confrontation. I love well, firing this shit out of someone. There, there are people like that. I mean, there are people that they, they enjoy, you know, these are the people that no matter what you say, they're going to say they're a contrarian, but yeah. then they take that to the extreme and all of a sudden they're, they're disagreeing with you or they like to be combative. So there's people like that, but I think they are fairly few and far between. So 
when you, a lot of people, when they, when they don't like having that hard conversation, for instance, you're working for me and you're kind of doing some substandard performance and, and I don't really feel comfortable. I mean, you, you and me, are, we're bros. So I don't want to go in there and say, hey, James, I know you've been working hard on this, but it's kind of taken a little bit off track of where we want to be. If you could tighten this up and move this over a little bit, we'd be, we'd be rock solid. And you, you know, you'd say, okay, cool. Yeah, I didn't understand that, but thanks for clarifying. But I don't even want to have that hard conversation. So what happens? We go down another month and now you're further off track. And now the conversation got harder because now I have to say, James, this is actually in the wrong direction. The work you've put into this hasn't been worth it. And so you need to make a pretty significant shift in what you're doing and throw away some of that stuff that you've worked hard on. So that's an even harder conversation. I don't want to have that one even more. So, so, so how do you get so yourself I let going? It go. And then finally you end up in this point where I'm going into you and the only conversation, I, I, now I have to have a conversation because the boss is re- breathing down my bo- back because we failed to do what we were supposed to do. And guess what our conversation is? James, I'm sorry, I got to let you go. And so I call it, you know, it's like an escalation that you have to have with people and all the conversations, if you have the, the hard conversations earlier, they're easier. They're, they're less hostile. The further you go down the path without putting corrective measures on someone, the, the harder that conversation is going to be with the final conversation being, hey, I'm sorry, I got to fire you. And by the way, when I have to fire you and I haven't given you any true guidance, I haven't given you any true leadership, I haven't given you clear expectations, I should, I'm going to feel bad when I fire you because inside, I'm going to know that it's actually my fault as the leader. It's my fault. I didn't, I didn't lead you correctly. You're a good guy. You're a smart guy. You're up. You want to do a good job, right? That's what most employees are like. So if you're not doing that, chances are pretty good chance. It's my fault. That's obviously not saying in every single case, because there's people that can't perform the duties that are expected of them. And those people, you know, they, they need to either find another job or move to another thing that they can handle. But to your point, the hard conversations are hard for everyone to have, not just you. And so, so how do you how do you summon up the courage when you need to have those hard conversations? I mean, I, I so one thing you could tell yourself is what you just said: the earlier I do this, the easier it is. But still, it, it, you know, it's like we're bros; like it's it's still hard. Yeah, it, it is hard, and it is a lot easier the earlier you do it. And here's what I used to do: so when I got to a point, you know, I got I went through the escalation because the first thing I'd say to you is, "Hey, James, you know what? Can you explain to me why you're doing this over here?" And how, and how you're going about this. And then that's just a question. I'm just asking you for information. And, I, and then I'll have an opportunity to guide you a little bit. Could you say, you know, well, I, I think that this is the good course to go because of this. And I say, oh yeah, you know, you might not have thought about that. And so maybe make an adjustment and you go, oh yeah, okay. I didn't know that. Cool. That's an easy, con- that's a relatively easy conversation to have. So the, the why question. Right. But what I used to do when I had to have those harder, harder conversations is I made sure that I wrote out the issues and I printed two copies, one for me and one for you. And then when you came into my office to talk to me, it was sitting on my, it's sitting on my desk, but in front of you, you had your copy. There's no way I could back out of it now. And that was a corrective measure of my own from the first time a guy came into my office and I, I, I coward, I, I, I was overcome with cowardice and couldn't have the harder conversation. Mm. So I said to myself, okay, how do I overcome that? Oh, I got an idea. When he comes in, it's going to be there and he's going to take that with him. So even if I don't get it out of my mouth, he's got to read it. But once it's there, it's in front of him. You go through the points. It's, it's, they're going to get what you're saying. 
And again, I would do that further down the escalation of corrective measures. You know, that's not the first time you come to my office, I'm not putting a piece of paper in front of you that delineates every mistake you've made in the last six months. I'm not going to do that. That's going to come when we're starting to get to a more significant problem and I need to get you on back on track and I want you to be back on track. So, so a lot of this, uh, and you discuss this later in, in, in the book, but a lot of this is uh, related to the concept of being proactive to kind of deal with situations before they happen. It reminds me of a story in the hedge fund business. So this guy gets hired by a hedge fund and on day one, he makes a trade that loses an enormous amount of money. So he goes to his boss, the manager of the hedge fund, and he says, I can't believe I did this. I'm sorry. You know, how, can we make back the money quickly so the client doesn't get upset about it? And the boss says, no, we're going to call the client right now and tell him what happened. And so they call the client and we said, we just lost, I don't know, $10 million for you. Um, here's what happened. You know, here's what we're going to do to kind of, you know, make sure it doesn't happen again. The client actually gave, invested more money immediately. So kind of this, this idea of being, proactive as opposed to waiting for the shit to hit the fan is is really important in in life whether you're at war or running a business or whatever yeah and, and we actually call that aggressive Def that's the default mode is going to be aggressive now when when a lot of people hear me say you've got to be aggressive they're thinking that i'm talking about attacking people with a battle axe and sometimes I am talking about that, but usually I'm talking about what you're saying, which is I'm going to get aggressive with my client and get aggressive in informing them of what is happening. Tell them early, tell them often. I'm going to get aggressive with my employees. Does that mean I'm yelling at my employees? No, it means I'm aggressively keeping them informed of how their performance is going. So that's what, when I talk about being aggressive, again, I'm not talking about berserker fury with battle axe in hand. I'm talking about being proactive and aggressively forming the course that you want to send people down. So, so let's reel it back a little bit. Like, why did you join? You joined the SEALs, I guess, right? And you were 18 years old, so it must have been like 1989. Like, why did you join in the first place? You know, ever since I was a little kid, I, I wanted to be some kind of commando. And so, why? As I, I, what did you want to do when you were a kid? Uh, I think I wanted to be a writer and, and interview people. <laughs> well, well, there you go. I had that feeling when I was a kid, but I didn't want to be a writer or interview people. I wanted to go into combat. And so that's what I did. And now in 1989, did you get the sense that, I mean, at that time, you know, the Cold War was ending. It seemed like world peace was here forever. Like it, it almost would have been, and, and my guess is, uh, people joining the military, I mean, military budgets were going down. Uh, what did you think, you know, were you kind of geared up all along to join the military or did you think that you were going to end up in, in wars or what were you thinking? My geopolitical sense of the world at age 18 was pretty minimalistic. And what I thought was, if you're in the SEAL teams, you're going to go fight wars. There's wars going on somewhere. There's a war in Nicaragua. There's a war in South Africa or in Africa. There's a war, there's wars all over the world. And I'm sure in my mind, again, this is what I was thinking in my mind. Well, I've, I'm going to be in the SEAL teams. I'm going to go fight all those wars. So let's do this. And when I got to the SEAL teams in the nineties, in 1991, when I got to SEAL team one, there was no war going on. And we call it the dry years because all we did was train a bunch and train some more. And that's what we did. 
So you were training, I mean, you were training basically for 10 years before 9-11. I, I was in the SEAL teams for 13 years before I shot my weapon at the enemy. And uh, was there ever a point where you figured, okay, I've been here five years, six years, now is the time to do something else? No, no, because it was awesome. <laughs> even, even without a war going on, hanging out with these guys that are in the SEAL teams, and even though you're not in combat, you're shooting machine guns, blowing things up, jumping out of airplanes, running on the beach. You know, you're, you show up to work in the morning, we would show up to work, we would train some martial arts for a while, and then we'd have a little meeting, and then we'd go work out for two hours, and then we'd get... I was, I was like 35 years old and making good... You know, you make good money in, in the military, in the SEAL teams, you make good money, and I wasn't even wearing a shirt at work. It was just awesome. So, no, I had no... It was, it was a dream. It was a dream. And you're working with the best guys in the world, and you have... Even though the mission... We were waiting... Back then, we were waiting for the big mish. So when, when I got to the SEAL team, because I thought I was going to go to Vietnam. Like, I thought I was going to f- go fight basically the Vietnam War, when I sh- even though it was 1991. But you're, so once, we, once I realized, oh, that there's no war going on, what are, what are we going to do now? Well, then we're gonna, what we're going to do is we're going to get ready for this big mission, whatever it is. What's a big hostage rescue? There's going to be some missile site that needs to get taken out. And so we just trained really, really hard for that all the time. And it was fun training. And, and that's, what it, that's what we did. You, you have a phrase in, um, that you use in a couple of different places, which is in both books, The Way of the Warrior Kid and Extreme Ownership. Uh, discipline equals freedom. And I really like that a lot. And I think it could be applied to many areas of life. And, and part of that involves, you know, discipline in my view involves having some sort of decision-making process, you know, basically eliminating the complexity of the decisions you make. Okay, this is my discipline. So this is the decision I make in this situation. And so because I've made my decision-making easier, I now have more freedom and more time to do the things I love to do. And so it seems like part of the training is building that discipline and, and under, coming to grips with that discipline equals freedom. Do, am I kind of uh, saying it correctly or? You are, and you're ta- you just pointed out the fact that discipline equals freedom, it applies to, it applies to everything. And you know, even as far as being an artist goes, and one of my favorite examples to bring up is Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin. Are you a Led Zeppelin fan? Yeah, of course. So Jimmy Page, you know, he was one of the most sought after studio musicians in England. And if you don't know what a studio musician does, they sit and they get told, play these notes for this, you know, commercial that's coming on or play these notes for this album that's coming out that you're not going to be even recognized on, but you play these notes. And so he just played what he was told to play and he was highly disciplined and did that all the time so that by the time he was in Led Zeppelin, he could do whatever he wanted with that guitar because he had had so much discipline in the past training for those moments when he was going to take a violin. What's that thing called? The violin thing. The the, the, the the I don't know the bow yeah the, the bow. bow from the he was gonna take that violin bow and play his electric guitar with it. You can't do that unless you're highly disciplined. So it applies in 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 art or music, and it applies to what you just said to your personal life. If you're gonna have if you want to have more free time, then you've got to have the discipline to say no to the things that are gonna take up eat up a bunch of your time. 
And and you know you can't kind of come up with the rationales for no on the fly. It has to go back to a discipline or you list like a, in the way of the warrior kid, you list various pages of, you know, codes of the Rangers, codes of the seal, codes of the Bushido. Uh, and whatever code you subscribe to, that kind of helps sort of internalize your own discipline. You don't have to follow someone else's code. You can develop your own, but I think that helps building your own discipline. Absolutely. I think that, you know, even with, with mission planning in the military, we would have something called commander's intent. And, and what that really means is, hey, guys, this is what I want to get accomplished. This thing here is the end state that we're trying to make happen. And as long as everybody knows what that end state is, they can accomplish it however they want. They can go over the hill. They can go around the hill. They can go through the hill. They, they can do a various bunch of methods to get there. And it's, it's the same thing with life. If you know what you're trying to get to, and just like you said, if you know what your core beliefs are, then when you get confronted with an issue or a question or a problem, and you just know, hey, I'm going to maintain my core beliefs on this, I'm going to follow my code, it's going to make it a lot easier for you. You know, um, I want to I wanna hit that actually for a second, but first, you know this one story about Jimmy Page. He was a studio musician for... The Who, and he goes and tells I forget I forget who within the Who. He says, "Oh, I'm going to start my own band, you know, instead of just like hanging out with you guys all the time." And the guy was like, "Who, who you know, I forget if it was the, the the you know which person in the Who, but the guy was like, "Oh, you know, that's going to go down like a sinking ship." And so that's why he named yeah. Led Zeppelin Led Zeppelin because the Zeppelin, you know, I, I think I think it down. was I I heard the story it was like Metal Balloon. Or you're going to crash like a lead balloon or yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah. So they, they named it Led Zeppelin. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And because I guess he knew his skills and he knew he had that discipline, he knew that whatever he did was going was gonna to succeed or he had a strong sense of it. No doubt. So, you know, but end state, the word, the phrase end state is interesting because it's not quite the same as a mission statement. It's, it's a, an end state is a particular state in mind that you can visualize. Like, this is where I'm going to end up. And then you could kind of backtrack from that and see all the things, not only that you have to do moving forward, but all the contingencies and the things that can go wrong. And and you bring up this a lot in, in extreme ownership, particularly in a war situation, but I think in any life situation, lots of things can go wrong along the way of achieving that end state. And you really have to list them out and figure out what you're going to do. And that's, you know, what you're saying a leader does. You know, I don't want to go completely in depth on the military history at this point, but I might a little bit. So there was the Germans kind of created this idea of decentralized command. They created it after the battle of Jena, where they got beat by Napoleon and they just couldn't maneuver their troops fast enough because all they would try and do is control the, the senior leadership would try and control each individual move. And on a battlefield, you can't control these individual moves. They happen so rapidly that your leaders that are in the field need to say, oh, we're getting flanked. We need to move over here. We're going to make it happen. So so that's where they came up with this idea of totally decentralized command and this idea of commander's intent, which is very similar to end state. And as the U.S. and the rest of the militaries in the world tried to adapt this policy and this, this concept of decentralized command and using commander's intent to to guide people what the u.s military did because the u.s military is a big bureaucratic machine is they started we would make briefings for our operations that would be 100 you know 100 or 150 powerpoint slides deep 
of telling, okay, this is what's going to happen here. Here's our contingency. If this happened, here's our contingency. If this happens, these massive plans. And there's a quote that, that I, that I dug up that, you know, the, the other specialists in this type of decentralized command looked at kind of how America was doing it and said, because at the end of this whole big briefings, we'd, we'd have a little line that said commander's intent. You know, my, my commander's intent, my end state that I'm going for is this. And this one critic of the way we planned said that the commander's intent shouldn't be one line on the end of a 50-page briefing. It should replace the whole briefing. Which is pretty cool, but I will I will push back at you for a second. Which is that when you're in the chapter on managing upwards and leading upwards, you kind of do have to uh, put in as much information as possible so that the leaders uh, have faith and don't try to micromanage you. You know, when you're at the finish line already, a hundred percent. So how do you how do you reconcile the decentralized command where you're kind of to giving a lot of trust to the people below you, but also making sure the people above you are fully informed and then they're not going to kind of ask the, the wrong questions at the last minute. Well, the people below me in the chain of command, we're going to build up trust. We're going to build up a relationship. And how do you build up trust with somebody? You give them trust. So the way I build up trust with you is I say, hey, James, we got this project. I want you to handle it. Let me know how you want to do it. And, and, and that you're seeing that I trust you. And now you're putting trust in me, so now my guidance means more. So that's that's an effective way to build trust. I like the, I like though the phrase "Let me know how you want to do it" because that means they now have to communicate back to you. They can't just say "You got it, sir," yep. and then he, they go off and they come yep. back with something you didn't expect. Right. I'm going to keep some control. It's going to be a nice indirect control, but I'm going to keep some control. So that way, when you come back to me an hour later and say, "Hey, here's our overall concept of operations," I say, "Oh yeah, that's pretty good." Hey, make this one adjustment over there. Oh, make this little adjustment here. And now you say, oh, okay, got it. But it still feels like your plan. I shouldn't say it feels like your plan. It is your plan. You came up with it. Same thing with people say, how do you get someone to take ownership? The way you get them to take ownership is by giving them ownership. You let them own it. And then they take ownership. Because if I say, hey, James, you're going to do this mission here. Here's how I want you to move into the target. Here's how I want you to go through the target. These are the people I want you to take with you. These are the standards I want you to follow. When you go out and execute that, it, that's my plan, right? But but when do you, when, you know, so like in, in chapter one again of, of extreme ownership, you said, it's my fault. If you have decentralized command and they're off doing their things, even if it's their plan and they, let's say they mess up, wh where's the line where it's not your fault anymore? Well, when you're in charge of something, the line where it's not your fault anymore is when things go great. <laughs> then it's their fault. Hey, that was a great operation. You guys did a great job. And when things go wrong, it's going to be your fault. Your other question about micromanagement. And I get asked this all the time. My boss is micromanaging me. How should I overcome it? And I got micromanaged through... The great thing about being in the military is you work for all different kinds of bosses. And, and people get the illusion that just because someone is in the military and they're in a leadership position, they're a great leader. It's com complete false. You get the same kind of great leaders in the military and you get idiots in the military. You have both. And you have extreme micromanagers and you have guys that are completely laissez-faire with letting you do what you want. So, and, and a point that I always make is that my relationship with all those different bosses was always the same. I had the same relationship with an egomaniac psychopath as I did with a, a tactical genius. My relationship with them was the same. And that was 
that they trusted me, they were going to give me what I need, and they were going to let me do what I want. And what if they didn't trust you? What if the egomaniac psychopath was like, no, Jocko, you're going to go in that building and shoot every man, woman, and child, whether they're friendly or not? Well, uh, you know, I know you're kind of being facetious, taking it to an yeah, extreme I'm taking, example. Yeah, I'm exaggerating. An extreme example where they're asking me to do something that's immoral and, yeah. and unethical, you say, no, not doing it. Okay. But if they're saying, hey, we really want you to come in from the West instead of coming from the South to hit this target, I'm going to work with them. I'm going to, but I, the, 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 the point is with all those leaders, I'm going to build up that trust and I'm going to do it differently with different people, different leaders. I'm going to build up that trust a different way. And an extreme micromanager, the way I always handled extreme micromanagers was I gave them more information than they could possibly want. I, I gave right. them so much information and control that they didn't even want that control anymore. But then what if in your decentralized command, something happens that is not in the micro information you handed your bosses and they go back to you and said, Jocko, you said this, this, and this was going to happen. Clearly your guys did not do it that way. Well, why would they not be doing something in a way that we planned? I see, because you're getting your information from, right. you're saying, let me know how you're going to do it. Yep. It's decent. It's, I'm getting the plan from the guys that are going to execute. If I'm one of the guys, I'll still let the guys that, that are below me in the chain of command execute. And again, you know, I, I don't want to make this sound like it's super easy. It's, it's hard. It's right. hard being in a leadership position. You know, that's why we have the business we have. We, the reason we have the business is because every company we go to, from companies that are doing really, really well, to companies that are not doing really well, when we come on board, they have leadership issues and, and they recognize, somebody at the company recognizes, hey, this, this problem that we have is a leadership problem. And I'll take that one step further. When you're in a business or you're part of a team or you're in the military and things aren't going the way they're supposed to go, it is a leadership problem. It is a leadership problem. You know, you can talk about process and you can talk about finances and you can talk about spreadsheets, but when you get to the bottom of those things, there's a leader that is not stepping up, taking charge, and making things happen. Yeah, and I, and I, and and just to add to that, I think there's a leader who's confused about his agreements on both sides to For his sure. bosses and to his employees. There's there's some some things that have been agreed to that aren't haven't been agreed to. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Boy, I'm so glad about this new sponsor, HelloFresh, which today's show is brought to you by. HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun so you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. I just recently started eating HelloFresh, and I have to say it's been a really great decision for me, and I'll tell you why. The recipe cards are so easy to follow, which is really important for me because I am not a good cook. The food is pre-measured for you, so there is no waste and everything tastes fresh, hence the name HelloFresh. They call themselves a fork to feel good company too, because when you cook and eat delicious and healthy meals, you want to keep doing it again and again. Plus, it's only $10 a meal. HelloFresh currently offers customers a classic box, a veggie box, and a family box. Customers can order three to five different meals per week designed for two or four people. New recipes are created every week. For $30 off your first week of deliveries, Visit HelloFresh.com and enter James Altucher 30 when you subscribe. Delicious ingredients you'll love to eat and simple recipes you'll love to cook. Get cooking. Are you hiring? Do you know where your kids are? No, seriously. Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? 
Finding great talent is tough. Thankfully, with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. And if you run into any issues, don't fret. ZipRecruiter's friendly and human support staff is ready to help. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. I wanted to talk to you about one thing which I believe very strongly in, which is you have to kind of be proactive when you're managing down in terms of firing people in, in a leadership situation or in terms of getting rid of people in some way or moving them around. And you have this one story where two managers underneath the, the CEO are both blaming each other and they're acting up and the advice is fire them both. And I agree with that very strongly. So as, as someone who's, who's run companies... I always noticed if so, if one person is a problem, that's like a cancer, and they're out there taking smoking breaks with the other employees, and the cancer spreads. And you have to kind of if you can't solve the problem very quickly, you have to eliminate the cancer or it spreads. And you know, I think that's proactive. And I'm just curious, you know, where where you kind of picked up that uh, instinct? Well, that definitely was something that I saw when I was in the military. There was two. There was, there was a leader and a subordinate leader that couldn't get along. And, hey, I can't get along with this guy. I can't work with this guy. I, can, oh, I can't work with him either. And the commanding officer said, okay, it's Friday. When you guys come back in on Monday, have a solution of how you're going to work together. And I think that was completely fair. They came in on, on Monday, and they, held, they both held, held the ground. I can't work with him. I can't work with him. And the commanding officer said, okay, you're both fired. Hmm. And, I, and it kind of surprised me because it was a very aggressive move by the commanding officer to fire two leaders that were getting ready to deploy, but he did it. And, and I get asked the question a lot of, hey, I've got this guy that I'm working with and he's, a, you know, he's an egomaniac and he's my peer, so I can't really do anything and what should I do? And I want to tell the boss. And to me, that's a real indicator. When, 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 you're, when you've got somebody that's good, has a lot of potential, they can work with anybody. I could work with, you're a hyper-aggressive you know, angry guy, I'm going to work with you. We're going to make things work. Oh, you're a laid back guy that really won't be too aggressive in making things happen. That's okay. I'm going to compliment what you've got going on and I'm going to make it good and we're going to get things done. And I'm going to share the credit with you. I'm not looking to take the credit. I'm sharing the credit with you and we're going to, we're going to move forward. So I think it's a real indicator when I got a guy that works well with the aggressive guy and he works well with this passive guy and he works well with this egomaniac and he works well with all those people. That, that guy, I'm actually looking to promote that guy. But the other guy who, I can't work with this guy. I can't work with this guy, he's too aggressive. I can't work with this guy, he's too passive, doesn't get anything done. I can't work with this guy, his ego's too big. That, that guy is basically raising a flag and alerting me to the fact that I'm not going to put him to a leadership position. Because every human being that you work with is going to have issues, is going to have problems. They're crazy right? People are, all people, they're crazy. They do crazy, inexplicable things. And you look at them and you say, I can't believe this person's doing that. But what are you going to do? You're going to work through it. You're going to find a way to get the best out of everyone that you, that you have on your team. 
So, 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 you know, a lot of people write to me and say, oh, I'm feeling stuck. I'm, I'm behind the cubicle. I've been working here for 30 years. I don't like my boss. I don't like my job. I wish I could do things, you know, what I, what I want to do in life, but I have, you know, mortgage and this and that. What would you recommend? You know, again, your, you know, your extreme ownership plus the discipline equals freedom, which, you know, it's all related. What would you recommend are kind of like the first steps someone listening to this right now uh, you know, someone saying, okay, this is easy for Jocko. He trained for 20 years and now he's building this business based on his training. Like it's all kind of flowing together. He's doing what he loves. What if somebody's listening to this saying, I want to do what I love, but I don't know how, I don't know what the first step is. So interestingly, a guy on Twitter, probably a year ago, sent me that, you know, 140 characters. I hate my job, want to do something else, stuck. What should I do? You know, he said something like that. I wrote back, Come up with an exit. Come up with an exit strategy. Execute. And I didn't remember this, right? It was something I t- tweeted to a guy at eleven thirty at night one night, and whatever. Six months later, or nine months later, you know, he re- he reported back <laughs> and he said, "I came up with an exit strategy. I executed. I started this company, or what? I forget exactly what he did, but he made the move." And so that's my advice when people when you're when something is happening in your life. That's not that you don't like. Okay, well, what are you going to do about it? Come up with an exit strategy. You know, I don't, I don't promote quit your job tomorrow morning and you, you know get rid of all all your stuff to have somebody sell all your things in your house and don't don't own anything. I, I don't recommend that. You can move in that direction, but what what I recommend is come up with an exit strategy, a legitimate exit strategy. I'm going to need this much money in the bank, or I'm going to get rid of this stuff, lower my overhead on my daily, on my weekly or monthly basis. I'm going to lower my overhead and then I'm going to come up with an exit strategy and then you execute it. And so it's sort of like, and I'll tell you one more thing is when you, when you're grinding for the man, right? If that's all you're doing, it's going to, it's going to burden you and it's not going to be fun. Once you say, Hey, I'm grinding it for the man, but I'm putting money away and it's going to, this is part of my exit strategy. Now, all of a sudden you're working hard because you want to get more money so you can execute your exit strategy. Next thing you know, you might turn around and, and figure out that you're good at your job and, and that works out well. Or the other side of the spectrum, you still hate your job, but you've saved money and now you execute your exit strategy. So it's sort of like, uh, come up with this exit strategy, but you know, the key word is do every day. <laughs> do like a lot of people kind of sit and think about it or come up with the excuses or come up with the blaming. Um, but I think the important thing is every day do something. And I see this even with all the things that I do, I can sit around and read, but I won't write anything unless I actually sit down in front of a keyboard and type or and what's arrange the a hardest, podcast or what's, what? What's the hardest part about sitting down at the keyboard and starting to write? I would say telling myself I have to do it, putting, putting the gun to my head that I have to do it. The hardest part in just about any task is starting it, right? For me, because, you know, I've written a couple, I haven't written 37 books like you have or, or whatever, but I've written close two books while I was working, while I was doing other things. And what I did was like, okay, I have to work. I, I, the hardest part of it is opening up the laptop, opening up your word processor and starting to type. Once you're starting to type, okay, well, you're just in the zone and you, you make it happen. And oh, oh and people say, well, what, do you, what do you do when you hit a writer's block or create? I don't care. Write anyways. Keep writing. Write, write, just do it. Just do the thing. Same thing with, you know, working out. 
What, what if you don't feel like working? It doesn't matter. The hardest part is getting into the gym. Once you're in the gym, what are you going to do? Lay on the floor and not do anything? No, you're going to finish it. You're going to do something. And that, and that something is infinitely better than nothing. And for this exit strategy that you're working on, you have to do something, like you said, every day so that you're making progress towards your goal. Now, I talk, you know, people get into the big goal thing and all this, and I, I don't really want to go down that road. But, you know, you have your long-term goal and you have... And that long-term, it's like shooting a gun. I've told this story before. When you shoot a gun, when you're looking at a target that's far away, after a, a couple seconds of looking at it, it, it becomes blurry in your vision. It's just, you get like, your, your eyes water up a little bit. You just can't maintain that long-distance focus. So what you do is you actually, when you shoot, you're shooting, you look at the front side of your weapon, which is, you know, three feet away from your eyeball. And the same thing happens with people's lives where They've got this long-term goal, but it's so far away that it gets blurry and they kind of lose track of it. And mm. so, you know, they might, if they think about it on a Friday night after a hard week at work and they go, this job sucks and I want, I want to do something else. I don't want to get, be under this grind anymore. I, I don't want to grind for the man anymore. But then Monday that gets a little bit fady and Tuesday. So that, then they're just, they're just doing what they have to do. If they take that long-term goal, they keep it there, but then they say, okay, look, what's something I can do today? What's something I could do tomorrow? What's something I could do the next day? Okay, you know what? I'm going to have my resume. I'm going to build my resume this week. I'm going to have a good resume together. Or I'm going to put together my business plan. I'm going to do that this week. Or I'm going to save this much money. I'm going to work this extra. I'm going to go deliver pizzas and put a little bit of money in, in the kitty. That's what I'm going to do. So you, you can't let the, the long-term goal be the only thing that's driving you because sometimes it's so far away that it gets blurry. So bring some short-term goals that you can actually execute on on a daily or weekly basis so you can move forward. Hmm. Like, like I wrote that, you know, people say, how long does it take you to write those books? I'll tell you right now. I wrote, I think this one's 30,000. The kid's book is like 30,000 words. I write 1,000 words a day. That's 30 days. Book's done. Next book. You know, and... Do I throw away some of those words? Of course I do. Do I go have to go back and edit the heck out of them? Yes, I do. But they're going to be there. And then I have that raw material to work with and I can shape it and clean it up and, and dial it. I think people don't realize that. Like if you write, for instance, a thousand words a day, right? Which takes like 45 minutes to an hour, by the way. Right. So, so that's 365,000 words a year. That's kind of like seven or eight books. <laughs> like the gulag archipelago. <laughs> people don't realize that it's not... I don't want to say it's easy to write a book because it's not. It's very hard to write a good book, but you can write a book easily in a year. Uh, not necessarily, you know, we don't know good or bad. You improve over right. time and you study the books written by others and you put your best effort into it, but it's, you still have to write the book and those thousand words a day. That's the discipline equals freedom. Like you don't have to worry about, am I going to get a book done if you know you're going to do a thousand words a day? You know, I read, you know, on my, on my podcast, I read, I review books. And so I, I review books about war primarily. And there's so many incredible books that it's hard to narrow down. And one of the things about, you know, we, we all have little problems in life. And, you know, you open this whole podcast off, off talking about how I'd been in all these intense situations and all that. And, and the fact of the matter is when you compare what I did in my military career compared with so many other military both enlisted people, officers, leaders, troops, they've done infinitely more than me, infinitely more than me. And I had a, you know, I did what I, I did what I could in my career, but there's, you know, you look at the battle of Guadalcanal or, 
you know, the, the battles in World War I and the things that those guys suffered through and went through is just, it's incredible. And I, I had a, a gentleman on my podcast who was, you know, a pilot in Vietnam. He was shot down two times. The second time that he was shot down, he was captured and he was in, he ended up in the Hanoi Hilton, which was the Hanoi Hilton because it, it was actually nice. He, he was in South Vietnam marching up to the North and held in bamboo cages with no food, starved, tortured, woke, wake up in the middle, wounded when he was shot down and he'd wake up in the middle of the night and there would be rats eating at his wounds. So when you know that people can get through situations like that, and you know, here I was on, on when he came on my podcast and I'm, he's got a book called Through the Valley and I'm, I'm reading these excerpts from his book about things that happened to him, about these rats eating at his wounds, about mock executions that happened to him. But it, it, to me, you know, my podcast is, is, it's about war and it's about leadership, but ultimately what it's about is it's about human nature and it's about the way people interact. And when you, when you want to learn about human nature, I'm not going to say it's the best place to learn about human nature, but war certainly amplifies the visibility of human nature and it makes it very clear to see. And so I like to study that and read books about that because at a minimum, when you look at your own life, there's not too many people that are in a worse situation, at least in America, of being locked in a two foot tall bamboo cage with their feet shackled and having rats gnaw at their, at their wounds. And the fact that human beings can, can suffer through that and survive and come back and be awesome citizens and very humble and live meaningful lives is, is just is very, it means a lot to me. And it, it makes me realize that we really are, are blessed to be in the situations that we're in. And, you know, that's, I'm quoting one book, but there's, you know, I've done 70 something podcasts and most of them have pretty incredible stories that, that human beings have lived through and survived and, and, and also, you know, those that didn't survive. And I always want to pay a tribute and honor to those that sacrificed their lives to give us this opportunity that we have now to sit in New York city, drinking white tea and recording a podcast about life. So I feel lucky to be here. I, I do as well, Jocko. And I'm really grateful you've came on the show. So so there's two directions I want to go with this. Uh, now, I want to talk about the way of the warrior kid, but I also want to talk about how you kind of live your life personally now because still you obviously uh, you know, adhere to a discipline. And when, when's the last time you were in the SEALs? I retired in 2010. 2010. So seven years ago, you've been running Echelon Front since? 2010. And uh, I assume the business is going very well. People are hiring you left and right. It's been great. <laughs> That's good. Congratulations. So, so what what do you do now? Like, I see on Twitter, you have your your watch every morning. You wake up at like you know you have the four forty five <laughs> club. Like, what do you wake up at four forty five or earlier every day? I wake up at four thirty every day. Four thirty yeah. every day. What if you went to sleep at midnight? I wake up at four thirty. <laughs> and so, so you're not you're not a believer necessarily that you need eight hours of sleep a night negative. And, and so, so, but the thing is, you know, and people send me these studies and stuff. I, I'm genetically, I don't need a lot of sleep. And, and, and I've heard that's possible. I heard that some possible. people genetically. So don't I have need. four children. 
my oldest daughter, she's like me. In fact, my oldest daughter, I'd go to bed at 11 o'clock at night and she would be up studying and I'd wake up at 4.30 and she'd be up studying. Mm-hmm. And so she doesn't need a lot of sleep. My second daughter, she, she sleeps incredible amounts, in, incredible amounts to feel rested. So she'll sleep nine, 10 hours, like no factor. So there's a genetic component to this. So I, I don't want to you know, make people think that, hey, Jocko sleeps five hours a night. I'm going to sleep five hours a night because it's probably not healthy. Some people can do it and some people can't. But I think why people have kind of latched onto that a little bit is because intrinsically they know that they don't need to get up at 4.30 in the morning, but they don't need to sleep in until 10. They don't need to sleep in until 8. They can get up and get a lot more stuff done. A lot of laying in bed is is some laziness. So, I mean, let's face it. When you're in bed in the morning and the alarm clock goes off, you know, it doesn't always jar me, but a lot of times you don't feel like getting up. So what are you going to do? Go back to bed, snuggle in with your little pillow. No, not going to do that. (laughs) So so I'm wondering like, so I'm someone who who feel feels like I need eight hours of sleep or more. Uh, How can I, you know, get a little better. I'd like to sleep seven hours a night or six hours and feel fully rested. You know, I do think depending on what your lifestyle's like, when the, when people tell me- Yeah, I don't really me, drink. I don't, uh, you know, I don't go yeah. out and go to parties or anything. I, I think, I think it definitely lifestyle. The more you, the, the healthier you are, the less you sleep you need. I think the better you eat and the cleaner you eat, the, the less sleep you need. But you know, bro, I'm not trying to say you should sleep five hours a night. You might need eight hours and that's cool. I, I have nothing against you. What I, what I, have and what I have an issue with, and what I think people personally have an issue with, is they know they know that they could get more done. They know that the only reason they slept in was because they didn't want to get up. I, I do feel like genes also, like even if something's genetics, that's you still can work within genetics too. There's a spectrum. Like if your genes say you need eight hours of sleep, there's still like things you could do. Like for instance, you know, clean eating that might boost you a half hour in the right direction yeah. or an hour. And so I'm just trying to figure out for myself how I can, because you're right, I can get an hour more worth of writing done if I get up an hour or an hour more reading done. Yeah, and and I don't know, but when I sleep eight hours, I actually feel groggy. Hmm. And when I sleep, when I sleep five hours, five and a half hours, six hours, I feel really good. Five and a half hours is solid. Five hours, I start feeling it a little bit. Less than five, I'll feel it. And, and then, and then you don't, um, you don't drink coffee, right? No. So, but you do, um, like, uh, uh, I was reading you do, uh, and I, and it's funny you do this cause I just bought some off of on it, alpha brain, mm-hmm. you know, those does that. Yeah. So I just bought them like about a week ago and I've been taking them, but I don't know if it works or not. Like, do you feel that it works? <laughs> you know, I don't know if it's possible. I take them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I take them when I'm going to do something that's going to require some sort of mental acuity. And again, I, I'm, I'm like you. Can I confirm it? No, I haven't done a double-blind placebo test myself, but maybe there's some placebo effect that makes me like it. So yeah, you know, I, I, I don't drink coffee. I, I, I drink tea. I drink white tea. And so I, I can feel, and I don't drink it all the time. So when I drink tea, I can feel the caffeine. I can feel it. Like mm-hmm. it's not, it's 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 very impactful to me when I drink 
caffeine. So you kind of tactically use it. I so tactically use it. If you're going to like hang out for the day with your kids, you might not have caffeine or, or maybe you do, but I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm not going but, to. But, but then if you're going to go out and do like a bunch of talks or meetings, you might, you know, kickstart the day with some caffeine. Right. Um, so what other, so again, under the guise of, of discipline equals freedom, what's part of your current daily discipline? I, mean, I wake up early and I work out every day. That's, that's the main, that's the main thing. There's no, there's no big, you know, eureka moment you know talk to anybody that does anything and you know I, i've seen you say it you know wake up early and do some physical activity you know it's good for your brain it's good for your body i uh, again no eureka moment there i get up every morning early and i work out so so uh in in way of the warrior kid you you it basically starts off where you know there's this kid who's kind of your net the quote-unquote the main you know Uncle Jake's nephew, or the main character is the nephew, and it's told from his point of view, he um, is sort of wimpy, like kids are picking on him, he can't do his times tables, like he's wimpy in a variety of ways. And then Uncle Jake comes to visit and starts giving him discipline. And it, and through that discipline, the kid finds freedom because now he, has, he doesn't have to worry about the big kids. He doesn't have to worry about the teachers. You know, that's a kind of freedom also. So, but part of that is, Uncle Jake wakes him up every morning. Like you, you kind of get him on that discipline. What what other kind of techniques do you, are you using with the the kid to? Not you. I shouldn't say you. What kind of techniques, Uncle? Is Uncle Jake using? Somebody, somebody asked me about you know. Oh, you, you know, you're Uncle Jake, and I and I responded the other day on on Twitter. I said, well, actually, Uncle Jake is like a, a an extremely flawless version of everything I could hope to be, right? That's that's <laughs> Uncle Jake. And yeah, that's what he does is is he gets him on a program. He says, oh, you want to do pull-ups? Then we're going to do pull-ups. You want to learn how to swim? Then we're going to go down to the river three times a week and we're going to start teaching you how to swim and we're going to get you there. You want to learn your times tables? Okay, we're going to make flashcards. We're going to review them every day. We're going to put you on a stopwatch so you can get done. So you get really super confident. You know, anything you put a timer on makes everyone freak out. You know, we used to do that a lot of shooting drills when we were when I was in the SEAL teams. You know, everyone's shooting really solid with your pistol or with your rifle, and you're hitting your target every time. And then all of a sudden, they break out the the little timer that that times you. And now you're competing with everyone. And, and all of a sudden, people start throwing shots all over the place. So. You put the kid on the timer on the on the flashcards. And and then the last one is, you know, the kid's getting picked on. And so his uncle takes him and teaches him, you know, get takes him to a jujitsu school where he starts learning grappling and and jujitsu. How long before let's say um someone I'm just curious about this. This is even almost unrelated to the podcast, but like let's say someone goes to a jujitsu class and somebody else is he because he's in part because he or she is dealing with someone picking on them or they want to feel a little bit more confident in self-defense, how how long in the jiu-jitsu class do they learn enough kind of skills or techniques or training before they can feel confident handling themselves with someone else? It happens very rapidly. And again, there's so many different variables here, but a normal person, let's say a 23-year-old male, if he learns jujitsu for six months, he's going to handle himself in 95% of street fights or altercations. One of the best things that he's going to get out of it is he's going to become more aware of what's happening. And he's going to realize that, that, that there's a 5% of the people out there that even though he knows a bunch is going to destroy him in a street fight. You know, you get somebody that wrestled at Iowa 
and you know a little jujitsu for six months, that person's going to pick you up on your and slam you on your head, and you know possibly give you brain damage. So you get that. But you know, we we've you know I own I own a uh, a jujitsu a mixed martial arts school in San Diego, and we have had all kinds of kids come through there. And a lot of them that come that start training is because they're getting picked on. And, you know, there's several cases, you know, one, one I'm thinking of off the top of my head where this, you know, the dad came in and said, Hey, you know, my son's, he's getting picked on and, and will this help him? And I said, yes, it will. And six months later, one of the kids, he, it wasn't him. It wasn't the kid himself that was getting picked on. It was another kid that was being picked on by one of these bullies. And this kid stepped up, stepped in and handled it and, and mm. choked the kid. Mm. And, you know, then called the teacher and said, hey, and all the other kids said, yeah, the, the, this guy, this bully was picking on us again. And, and little Jimmy over here somehow made him go to sleep. And, and it, you know, that's, that's, that's one of the things you learn in jujitsu. You know, you learn how to do that, but you also learn the power of it. You know, the, you learn when you need to stop and how, how you can, I mean, you can, you can really hurt somebody with jujitsu. So you need to be very careful with it. But yeah, you can, once you learn it, it's a very powerful, you know, one of my kids, uh, there's a movie called The Incredibles. Did you ever see that movie? Yeah. So one of my kids, when you know, is my son actually, when he was you know six years old or something, he said, you know, hey dad, is there really such a thing as superpowers? And I and I said, I thought, my first thought was no, and then I said, yes, there is jujitsu. It, it, it's it's like a superpower because you can defeat people and you don't have to cower down to them and. And it teaches you, it does give you real confidence. And that's what happens in the book. And, you know, the book, his confidence grows so much because he's f- fighting people on a daily basis in his jujitsu school. And that gives you confidence that you can handle yourself. And once you build up that confidence, the 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 percentage of times that you af- actually have to utilize these skills goes down dramatically. Because and I think that's one of the things going beyond that age what happens to boys when they turn 14, 15, 16, all of a sudden they're looking to prove themselves. All of a sudden, you know, for me, when I was that age, it was, how can I prove that I'm tough? And, and I think that happens to, how can I prove that I'm a tough guy? Oh, I can get in a fight. Oh, I can, and, and that's what happens. Well, if you're training jujitsu or you're training boxing, you're training wrestling or you're training Muay Thai, if you're training one of these real martial arts that makes you fight other people, you don't need to prove yourself. You're proving yourself in the gym every day. So I think it it gives kids, I think it gives 14, 15, 16-year-old boys real toughness so they don't have to go out and try and prove their toughness in some other method. You know, there's no manhood drill in America anymore or in, in American culture. There's no, you know, those cultures where they jump off the, the, the with, a, with a vine tied to their leg. You jump off the 40-foot tower and stop right before you hit the ground. You know, there's no, there's no, ceremony like that. We don't have that. So how does a, how does a young boy prove that he's turning into a man? Cause there's some instinct in the back. At least there was in my mind, in the back of my mind, I wanted to prove I was tough. I wanted to prove I could protect the tribe when I was a kid. So how do you do that? You go get in a fight with someone and that's not, not going to be healthy. It's not a healthy way to grow up. Were you kind of like uh, the bully as a little kid? <laughs> no, no, no. I was a little kid. I was, you know, when I was a kid, I was small. I was a very scrawny kid. And so, no, I got, I got, uh, I got picked on. I got bullied. It wasn't some extreme example that scarred me mentally or anything, but uh, who didn't, when you're a freshman in high school, 
you're going to get slammed into the lockers. People are going right. to knock the books out of your hands. You know, they're going to, they're going to, what's that? Pull your pants down while you're standing in the lunch line. That that's, that's the kind of bullying that I'm talking about. I'm not, I'm not trying to make this big thing. Like I was being, you know, aggressively bullied, but no, but I was a, I was, a, I was a 13 year old boy in America. And when you're a 13 year old boy in America or in any culture that I, that I've seen, you're going to get picked on. And so what are you going to do about it? Well, run. I yeah, ran. <laughs> yeah, you, you can run. And there's sometimes when you can't run though. And, and, and for me, I didn't want to run. You know, I wanted to stand up for myself. And unfortunately, I didn't really have, know what I was doing. So I had to bear it. I had to live through it. And then what happens then to your question? Was I a bully? No, I wasn't a bully. No. I was empathetic to what it felt like when those kids were getting picked on. And so, you know, I didn't, I didn't do that. So, so I want to, I want to talk a little bit about your, your time in Iraq. Like you were there, uh, 2004, 2005. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm getting the years right. And, uh, here we are 2017 and I'm sure you've been asked this. We're kind of still there. We're kind of still in all these places. These are longer conflicts now than than Vietnam was. Where did leadership break down in our attempts to help, you know, what we thought was an evil situation? And and the flip side of that is when is something evil enough that America has to decide, okay, we're gonna go into this country, but not this country? Like for instance, we didn't go into Rwanda when there was a genocide going on there, but we went into Iraq when there was evil, but where was the line? Like, why did we go there and not other places? Well, to break down those specific situations in Rwanda, I was actually sitting off the coast of Rwanda, ready and prepared to go in when 800,000 Tutsis were killed primarily with machetes in a 100-day period. Hmm. And, you know, it was an absolute nightmare of a situation. And I don't know how familiar you are with it, but the one of the things that I found most disturbing about the genocide in Rwanda is that the, the, the Hutus and the Tutsis in order, there's no way to tell them apart, right? So they speak the same language. They are the same race of people. They were living on the same street. They were going to the same schools. They had the same religion, right? Which was Catholic. Hmm. And the only way that I would know that you were a Tutsi is if I knew you. I had, to, I had to know you. I couldn't just look at you and figure it out. I couldn't listen to the way you talk and figure it out. I had to know you. I had to know your family. And so that, to me, this wasn't killing where, hey, I'm just killing this guy because he's a different color than me, or I'm not killing this guy because he speaks a different language than me. I, 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 the only way for me to know that I should kill him is because I have to know him have to know him as a person. So that's really, really disturbing. Now, I would say the primary reason why we didn't go in to Rwanda is because this was in 1994 and in 1993, we had had the, the Black Hawk Down situation in Somalia. Hmm. And so the, you know, we lost a lot of soldiers in that situation. It was an out of control situation. Things went really bad. And I think the overall stomach in America was, hey, we don't, we don't need to do that again. And so, hey, we're not going to go there. But 
of course, as time goes by, we, those, those feelings fade and we forget that war is a horrible thing and that horrible things happen in war and enough time goes by that we see another bad situation and we say, okay, let's go fix this. And you know, that's, that's one of the reasons why, why the public in America and, and the government in America said, you know what, we should go into Iraq and help these people. And, and so do you think it was, uh, uh, I mean, our idea of nation building clearly didn't, didn't work. So regardless of, let's say, political beliefs, I mean, now it's been Republican, Democrat, Republican administrations, somehow or other, we're not making it click in there. We're not, and, and you know, we've upset the balance of the, the Middle East, like Iraq was sort of our buffer against Iran for a long time. Uh, in some cases, we armed Iraq, you know, we knew who Saddam Hussein was in the 80s, but we gave him all his military equipment. So where, again, do you think, you know, leadership went wrong and or, or not like what's what's the situation so from my perspective and, and i understand you're not this is not like you don't have to be an expert on this i just i'm cu- just curious well, i mean i i spent you know what was it i spent nine years of my life in in wartime military mm-hmm. and so we learn a lot about this and we study it all the time and from my perspective you know when we go to war, the biggest thing about going to war is when you go to war, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again, you have to have the will. And there's actually two types of will that you need to have when you go to war. The first one is the will to kill. And that sounds pretty easy because, okay, there's bad guys, we're going to go kill the bad guys. But it's not that easy because war isn't that easy. Because when you start killing people, you're not just going to be able to specifically kill the bad guys and there's going to be innocent casualties. There's going to be innocent civilians. There's going to be women and children that die in war. And there's also going to be, let's say, military on the other side who they're trying to kill you, but they're still just 18-year-old kids For sure. who are not necessarily... Just, it's just a circumstance that they happen to be on the other side of you. For sure. And you have to have the will to kill those people because if you're going to war, that is how you win is by killing the enemy. And when you kill the enemy, there's going to be civilians that die. And that is awful. That is awful. The other will that you need to have is the will to die. Because if you think that you're going to be able to go into a wartime situation and fight against those other 18-year-old kids and that they're not going to kill some of you, you're wrong. You are going to lose people. You're going to lose American men and now women in war. So if you don't have those two types of will, then you need to really question what you're going in to, to try and make happen. And you need to have a very clear picture of what it is that you're trying to make happen. So in Iraq, one of the things that when I talk about this subject is I I like to at least give some indication to people of what it was like on the ground because what it was like on the ground was not portrayed in the media. It was not portrayed in the media and and life in the Middle East is not portrayed well in the media. But when we were in Ramadi in 2006, the, there was, there was, it was a horrible war zone and there was 
it was a horrible war zone. The area was pretty much controlled by insurgents. And these insurgents, and there were still, you know, there's still hundreds of thousands of people that lived in Ramadi, normal people. And again, I always have to explain what a normal Iraqi family is like because a normal Iraqi family, Americans don't know what a normal Iraqi family is like. A normal Iraqi family is a normal family. They're just a normal family. There's a dad, there's a mom, there's kids. They, they, you know, they, they have a job. They're trying to do improvements on their house. They're trying to save up for a new car. They want their kids to be educated and live a better life than them. That's what, that's what, they're, that's what a normal Iraqi family is. And in Ramadi, there was 400,000 people. Some of them had fled while we were there, but let's call it 300,000, maybe 200,000 people that were living, that were normal that just wanted to live in peace. And they were being reigned over by these heinous, evil insurgents that were literally beheading fathers and skinning people alive and burning people. It was, it was awful. And so when we showed up, the first reaction from the local populace was, we better not talk to the Americans because if, if the insurgents see us talking to the Americans, they're going to come and kill our whole family. Were the insurgents there, and this shows my lack of understanding, were the, the insurgents there before you were there? Yes and no. So there was some insurgents or, or prior military or Saddam loyalists that were there that turned into insurgents. There were some that came in, foreign fighters, from other countries that were going to go get their jihad on. And a lot of the Iraqi insurgents were looking for power. They were looking for, oh, oh, Al-Qaeda is going to come in here and take over. Okay, well, we better get in good with them. So how do we do that? And so some of those guys would say, okay, well, we'll help you. We'll help you do what you're trying to do. We'll help you fight the coalition. As soon as the coalition took a strong stand in Ramadi and started to defeat the insurgents, the local populace said, okay, thank you. And they were, they were great. And we worked with all kinds of locals. When we showed up there, there was, I think, 30 Iraqi police officers, of which we probably saw three of them because none of them would come into work. And a year later, there was about 2,400 Iraqi police that were now in charge of their city and they were keeping it clean and keeping it free of violence and the violence completely dropped off and and Ramadi was really the it was really like the poster child of counterinsurgency because it it completely turned around in about a year year and a half period where the, and then it held with with you know probably less crime than many American cities and less violence than many American cities for about 7 years until the embers of the insurgents that were still glowing, little glowing embers, they started to grow once we pulled out. Once we pulled out, there was, you know, a, a, a power vacuum. What do you think we could have done? Like, uh, as a because po- it's obvious we can't stay in there forever. Well, we don't need to stay somewhere forever, but, uh, you know, I had, I had a, a woman ask me that similar question the other day. And I said, you know, if you had, if you were home and you had a fire in your kitchen and then you took the fire extinguisher and you put the fire out and then you looked at your watch and there was a, you know, a movie that you were going to go see, would you leave and go to the movie with this, you know, still smoke in the kitchen? No, you wouldn't. You'd stay there. You'd 
make sure it was out. You'd replace whatever you needed to replace. You'd put out all the embers. You'd scrape them out. You put you would you'd make sure that the problem is gone before you walk away. It's if you had cancer. If you had cancer in your body and I did surgery on you and I got I, I said, okay, I got the got the cancer out. Do you, are you going to come back and, and see me again and do the blood test to make sure that that cancer is gone? Yes, you are. And if it's still in there, it's going to be smaller, but we're going to go and attack those little pieces that are still there. So that's what it is. We, we needed to stay. And you say we can't stay there forever. <laughs> we've been in, you know, we've been in Germany. We're still in Germany. We're, we're still, right. we're, we've been in Japan, you know, for, for many, many years. And, you know, Korea, we're, 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 we're there and support in Korea. So we can stay there for a long time. And so where's, where's the line when, uh, when, I mean, many countries and all these other continents are, have, you know, dictatorships or leaderships that are, you know, what you could say is evil. They do things that wouldn't necessarily follow our ethical code. Where's the line where America has to say, okay, we're going to go in now and do something about it. I, I think we have to look at our own security and mm -hmm. see how these how these this country threatens our security and you have to look at it from a humanitarian perspective as well that you is know, that because we have the resources and other countries don't so that gives us a responsibility or I, I feel like we have the responsibility i mean when those when those people were getting killed in rwanda I, you know do we have some response is it okay for us as a nation just to look the other way when 800,000 people are butchered with machetes in 100 days when we could, we, we could have relatively easily put a stop to it. Now, it's hard to know that, right? But that's the kind of judgment that, you know, our, our nation needs to make. And part of that judgment is, is 800,000, you tell me, are 800,000, you know, civilian people in Rwanda, if we lose 10 Americans trying to fight them or trying to put it to a stop, if we lose 10 Americans, what's the number? I don't know. You, you tell me. What's your opinion? Is it one American? I mean, I'll tell you, one American is, is every American that gets the lost in combat is a heartbreaking travesty. It's yeah. horrible. Yeah, and I mean, you've, you've lost friends in, in Iraq and in the, you know, throughout your military career. And, you know, to answer your question, I guess I don't know. Like, philosophically, it's easy for me to say there's no justification or there's this or that or here's where the line is. But then I think, well, what if my daughter, who's now 18, uh, wanted to go into, you know, Iraq and and do things? I'd be, I, I don't know how I would react. Like, I don't know if I would, obviously, she's an adult. I can't stop her from doing anything, but I don't know if I would let her. <laughs> like, I'd be scared. What was she trying to go do? Let's say she wants to fight evil. Let's say she sees evil and she sees this as a way to to help and, you know, let's say she says everything. She, she wants to, this is a potentially dangerous for America. She wants to help and for various strategic reasons. She wants to help stop the evil that's happening to women over there in a worst case scenario. She wants to help people from being, stop being beheaded. She wants to do everything she can. But like you say, there's always the potential. She, she has to have the will to die to, to do that. And that would scare me. You only have like, a, I only have two kids. Uh, yeah. I'd be scared. No doubt about it. And I think a lot of times people forget that because it's not their kids that are going to war. It's yeah. some other one. It's someone else's kid that is going to war. And so that's why leadership could potentially break down at the top level. If, if somebody, whether it's Congress or 
a president or, and I'm not making any judgments against anybody because I don't really know the answers, but it, does there sometimes happen where it's a breakdown because there's people don't have skin in the game? I would say, could that happen? Yes, that could. But you know, there, there's, there's advisors to the politicians that are military guys. And, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you right now, a lot of times I think military guys get the reputation of being, you know, hawkish and, and pro war. When the fact of the matter is I, I, I can, I can promise you there's no one that understands the loss of these kids better than people that have been in situations where they've lost their, their men, their friends, their brothers. And so they weigh that very, very heavily. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's interesting. Cause I, you know, like guys like Colin Powell, for instance, he wavered, you know, throughout his career between war situations and no, we can't go in there. So that's an example where, you know, someone has taken both sides and, and tried to navigate these difficult uh, decision. So, so I respect that a lot. And I think it's, I think it's just a very complicated issue. Yeah. And, and I will tell you that from my perspective, you know, I talked about being aggressive earlier, you know, I want, you know, the last time I got into a street fight, no, I don't even remember. It's been a long time. Why is that? I'm big. I'm strong. I know how to fight. That, that means when People see, see me, potential, you know, opponents, some drunk guy walking down the street. If you and I are walking down the street a block apart and there's a drunk bunch of idiots, they're not going to say anything to me. They're going to see you and they're going to go, hey, you know what? Let's, let's, let's talk some smack to this guy. Right. So I think as a nation, that's how I want to be perceived. I want to be perceived that we have strength, that if somebody causes problems with us, we will effectively smash them. And I, th and I believe that the more that we have that image, and it can't just be an image, the more that is the reality, the less we will have to use our military and our, our, our blood in other parts of the world. And I guess that uh, uh, goes along with your discipline equals freedom statement. So we obviously want freedom to never fight a war, but in order to do that, we kind of have to show other countries that, and I'm... Um, echoing you. We kind of have to show the other countries that we have the discipline if we need it. Y yes. Yes. We, we need to be willing. We need to show people that we have the will that if they do things that are out of line, then we won't stand for it. And when people recognize that, when the rest of the world recognizes that, it'll make us a safer place and we'll have to use our military less, in my opinion. Again, who am I? I'm just some guy talking on your podcast, but that's my opinion. But you've been there. You, you've seen it. You've done it. You've seen the worst. Live through it. You know, so I, I ask you because I value your opinion on this. And it's a, it's a question that I'm sure everybody thinks about. And, it's, and everybody kind of throws out, you know, answers and solutions. And they argue about it in op-eds. And, yeah, and it's and just again, all stupid, most of the opinions out there yeah, and, and on just, either side. Just to, just to summarize, you know, to make it clear, I'm not a guy that's sitting here saying, let's go to war. I don't want to go to war anywhere. You know why? Because I know these guys that are going to war. They're my friends. And you know what? I've got one son. He's probably going to go in the military. That's going to be him. I don't want, you know, like I said, people that have been in the military, they're the ones that are saying, hey, let's think twice about what we're doing. But again, I think in order to deter 
evil actors in the world, they need to understand that there's consequences that America will impose on them if they do things that are beyond what human beings should be doing to each other. So first off, I want to, I want to again, recommend, uh, you know, Way of the Warrior Kid, which by the way, this was a great book for me to read. So I'm 49 years old. I'm not a kid, but this is a great book because I think it really encapsulates a lot of the strategies you talk about in Extreme Ownership, which is also a great book to read. Uh, so I recommend both. Way of the Warrior Kid just came out. Extreme Ownership's been out for a while, but the lessons always apply. So Jocko Willink, thanks a lot. And uh, again, Way of the Warrior Kid and Extreme Ownership, How U.S. Navy SEALs Lead and Win. I recommend them both. They both have been useful to me in ways I didn't expect. So I really appreciate you writing these books. So thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Listen, I know the James Altucher Show is a show that obviously all of my listeners listen to, but you should totally check out a few other podcasts. And the one I'm going to recommend the most right now is The Art of Charm with Jordan Harbinger. I've got Jordan on the phone with me right now. Jordan, tell my listeners what they should be paying attention to on your podcast. Sure. So recently, and we do have a lot of overlap, but it's it's cool that we are able to take these guests into different angles. I almost feel like someday we should co-host something together because then the guests will just be, they'll never know what's going on. It'll be really funny. Well, I, I use your podcast a lot to prepare for my guests because I don't want to ask the same questions you did. I feel like Actually, people need to listen to both podcasts to really get the full picture of some of these guests. That's true. I actually do the same thing. So that that's funny that, that that's funny that we both do that. I'm glad to hear that. It's a, a high praise. And um, recently, we had General Stanley McChrystal, who is the theater commander in Afghanistan and, and the head of special forces over there as well in Iraq. And this was a really really interesting episode for me because we talk about leadership from a special forces perspective, understanding flexibility, adaptability, unpredictability in decision-making and how a guy who gets up every morning with people's lives in his hands essentially has to make decisions. Cause it's, you know, you and I, when we get to eat lunch, we're like, ah, who cares? I don't know. We'll do it this way. We don't put much thought into it. This is a guy who has to put a lot of thought into every little decision, uh, other than, of course, his food choices, and which he's famous for not eating very much. And you can imagine why a guy has to make those kind of choices. So he's super interesting. And we talk about the relationships in networking and things like that in our organization. So Stanley McChrystal was an interesting figure, especially being a controversial guy and being super open on our show. So I highly recommend that episode as well. That was a great episode. You've had Tony Hawk, Susan Kane. Larry King, uh, you know, and 540 other guests. But how did you get uh, General McChrystal? General McChrystal, he was a member of some author group and somebody who was on the show, she said, what can I do to help you? And normally people go, I don't know, let, let me know if you ever blah, 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 and they'd ever do it. I'm always like, sure, can you introduce me to somebody who'd be a good fit? And it was Nancy Duarte, actually, who said, yeah, I know General Stanley McChrystal. Do you think he would be a fit? And I actually took a call with him, like, right, pretty much right then. He happened to be around and available and replied to emails. You can imagine he's a pretty organized guy. And we just ended up doing a show pretty quickly after that. So it was really, really easy. It was through relationships, which is how I end up getting most of the guests on AOC. 
what's what's a guest that's really like blown you away that you want to talk about? I had this guy relatively unknown in our circles named Tom Wainwright, and he wrote a book called Narconomics. And essentially, we talked about the parallels between the drug trade and regular business. And this isn't some random economist writer. He does write for The Economist, but it wasn't just like, here are some charts and graphs. He actually wore a GPS device on his ankle, went to... Central America, South America, Mexico, et cetera, and went and visited these guys in their headquarters and even in prison. We talked about the economics and business principles applying to the drug trade and how they engage in corporate social responsibility, branding, PR campaigns, uh, why drug cartels franchise, regulate labor, branch out online, and have all these kind of crazy parallels that you would just never think. Of course, their parallels, their idea of branding or PR is to maybe like hang bodies from an expressway or to make it look like somebody else did that. So it can be a little macabre, but it's very interesting to look at some of these people who, if they were born into another set of circumstances, circumstances would actually be titans of industry. Well, they were titans of industry in a weird way. Yes. Yes, exactly. They'd be titans of industry that are being interviewed themselves and have their own respectable businesses rather than people that everyone's afraid of and end up in prison or dead. Tell us about Larry King. How did you get him and why was he a great guest? Sure. I had Larry King on. How did I get Larry King? It's been a while. I got him through mutual friends. And it's funny because after that episode, he interviewed me as well and we ended up becoming friends. And now it's kind of funny. I end up hanging out with him in LA, which is <laughs> funny because can you imagine? I mean, he's like 85 years old and I'm 36. It's It's got to be a funny sight. Next time I'm going to take a picture, I'll put it on the website and on Facebook. I'm kind of always in interview mode. You're really good at like talking about yourself. I got to get better at that. Yeah, I had a lot of practice, and I think part of it was being interviewed by so many other podcasts that I got good at it because I wasn't any good at it before. I would fumble and fidget or go, well, you know, I don't know, this and that. But after you get interviewed by all these other like smaller shows and things like that, you just get so many reps in. I mean, the whole idea of these podcasts, I feel, is we basically call up people who are our heroes, and I'm always nervous before every guest. Yeah, I would say that's true for me for the most part as well. Sometimes I'm less nervous because it's an author and I read the book and I feel pretty well prepared for it. But yeah, sometimes you're just sitting there thinking, wow, I hope this goes well and that person likes me. And you and then you realize it's all ego and it doesn't really matter if they don't like you as long as the content's good for your audience, right? So, so Jordan Harbinger, The Art of Charm podcast, a must-listen to I highly recommend it. Subscribe to it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you download podcasts. He's got great guests. They complement very much the themes that we talk about in the James Altucher show. And go for it. Thanks a lot, Jordan. Thank you. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.